All right. So continuing in our series in Hebrews, uh, we're going to look at an interesting topic. Greatness. Many people spend their entire lives in a search for greatness or to find things that are greater. Our culture, we love going on to bigger and better things. It's very American of us that bigger is always better, right? Greater is always the pursuit. But how do we determine what is greater than something else? How do we determine what is great or what is greater? If you were like me uh, in elementary school math, you had a, always had a hard time with the greater than, less than sign. I just think of Pac-Man. Whatever Pac-Man is eating, that thing is greater. Pac-Man, man after my own heart, just keep eating, keep moving. But we don't really think about how many decisions we make in our lives where we're looking for the greater thing. We're fascinated with top 10 lists, right? There is a top 10 list for everything, and there is probably a top 10 list for top 10 lists. If there is something to be, to be brought up, there is a top 10 list for it. And if you're a guy, and I don't know if this is the same for women, guys, we will debate anything. We will debate sports. We will debate food. We will debate what is the best. It doesn't even matter if it's actually the best. I just want to prove you wrong. Just me? I've seen some of you guys do it. And so we love to debate things. Certain things should not be up for debate. Fries are greater than salad. Not up for debate. That's not up for debate. Sorry. Um, steak is better than, than tofu. Not up for debate again. Football is greater than soccer. Ooh, anybody? So here's, here's the thing, though. If you're a soccer fan, you can throw something at, at me later. No, nah, but you can't throw. So that's not up for debate either. And so we, we can talk about these things all day long, and these are preferences, and we can debate them if you want, but you'll lose. But let's talk about something that, that may not be as obvious. Being a prince is better than being a slave, right? Or is it? Because when we encounter Moses this morning, Moses is the greatness of Egypt at his fingertips. Moses sees everything that the world has to offer and is a prince in the house of Pharaoh. But is there something greater than being a prince in the house of Pharaoh? Let's take a look at our text this morning. We're in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24. I'm going to read 24 through 26 and then we're going to pray and walk back through this together. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let's pray. God, you are great. You are great and awesome indeed. You are mighty. Your works are mighty. Your grace and your mercy are greater than we could ever earn or ever imagine. Lord, the things on this earth can distort view of what is truly great and can deceive us and can lead us astray. Lord, I just pray that we would be people who would make you the highest desire of our heart, that would come before you in awe and wonder. And be like Moses and be able to turn from everything in the world that would distract us from you. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit would work 
through this text this morning, that you would convict us and grow us into maturity into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our passage today is not really a commentary on a particular text itself, but really kind of gives us some insight into where Moses was. What was the condition of his heart and what was his motivation? Because his flesh would have told him that being in Egypt with all the prestige and privilege and pleasure and prosperity and any other P word I can think of was at his fingertips. But what did his faith tell him? So I want you to turn to Acts chapter 7. So I think Stephen gives us a little bit more insight than the text in Exodus does. What Stephen is doing in this great speech in Acts chapter 7 is he's telling these self-righteous Israelites that all of these patriarchs that you look back to, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, they were looking forward to Christ. Their hearts desired the living God more than anything else. And so where we find ourselves in in Exodus is just really a few verses after what we looked at last week. Last week, we were looking at baby Moses, baby Moses, who was saved out of the Nile River, who's brought up in the house of Pharaoh, who becomes a son of Pharaoh's very daughter. But then baby Moses grows up and he recognizes that his people are being mistreated and something changes. And I think Stephen gives us a a great insight here. So we're going to look at. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 22. And it says, And Moses was instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? It's a little ominous if you know what happens after that. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Humanly speaking, Moses had everything in Egypt. But something came over his heart. What we didn't see in the text in Exodus, this was premeditated murder. He looked around, he looked from the right and to the left, and he slayed this Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. And in that moment, he was not thinking about his privilege, his status, his standing before the people of Egypt, which can turn into the pride of life. He wasn't thinking about the the pleasures that he had in Egypt, these desires and passions that can turn into the desires of the flesh. He wasn't thinking about the prosperity. He had all the wealth of Egypt at his fingertips, which can become to the desires of the eyes. These three things sound familiar. They should be. Because John touches on this in the second chapter of his epistle. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. This shows us the heart of Moses and what should be the heart of every believer. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We see this in Moses. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Egypt had all that and then some. But Moses chose the will of God. Moses chose to be aligned with the people of God rather than all of the prestige in Egypt. So back in Hebrews, we're going to walk through these verses. Now that we understand where Moses is and the predicament he finds himself, why is Moses an example of faith here? By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses, when he, had, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses is a great figure throughout all of Scripture, especially in the book of Hebrews. To the Israelites, that was one of their most important predecessors. Because he gave them the law. He brought them out of Egypt. They looked to him as a functional savior. But as great as he was, he was looking forward to someone greater. We're going to see that the next couple weeks. And he threw away his life of privilege. No longer being called a son of the daughter of Pharaoh. Moses recognized that purity before the eyes of God was greater than privilege before the eyes of man. He recognized that purity before the eyes of God was better than privilege before the eyes of man. Think think about the wisdom and the faith that that takes. To turn away from everything you've ever known, to walk out of a palace, and to align yourselves with these lowly slave people. He denied everything that was at his fingertips. And I think there's a temptation for us in the year 2017 to look back and think, well, of course you would do that. Of course, I would never live in the house of Pharaoh. Really? I think because we have this limited view of what it meant to be in Egypt. I mean, think about Las Vegas, New York City, London, Paris, all rolled together, the greatest nation, the greatest culture the world had ever seen up until that point. Still not appealing to you? Imagine walking into a city. Pyramids on the horizon. Amazing architecture. Beautiful paintings. Riches beyond compare. Food, art, fashion, wealth. Everything was there in Egypt. And Moses was in the palace. I mean, they were an advanced society like the world had never seen. They were in the most fertile land that the world knew at that time. Along the Nile River. I mean, this was the worldly garden of Eden, and this is what Moses grew up in. Something changed in his heart. He didn't see all of the glitz and the glamour of Egypt. He saw his brother being oppressed. That is a man of faith. And we, we, we think that those temptations still don't exist, or do they? I mean, isn't that the appeal of the royal families? The appeal of Hollywood actors and actresses, the appeal of athletes. They captivate us. We love lifestyles of the rich and famous. 
And far too many Christians have been enamored with that. Are you? Are you just amazed at what the next headline tells us? What are the rich people doing now? What are the important people doing now? Our culture celebrates these things. And could we really say that if that was offered to us right now, that we would turn it down? That we would choose the reproach of Christ over the riches of the world? It's a real question. So let me pose for you a real question. Right now, someone walks in this room and says, here's $10 million. Here's a movie contract. No strings attached. It's yours. You get to fly around the world. You get to live in glitz and glamour. You get to have private trainers. You get to have the best food, the best the world has to offer. Would you take it? Because what probably comes along with that is you have to move to Hollywood. You probably would have a hard time, if not an impossible time, finding Christian fellowship. You have more important things to do. You certainly wouldn't have time to come to church. Reading the Bible is such an archaic thing. You've got all these more important things to do. You couldn't do both. Maybe a few of you here thinking, I could do both. I could do this and I could do that. I could tell you, no, you can't. The sad truth is this is not too much different from many people who call themselves Christians today. They're not in Hollywood, but they're chasing after greatness in the world. Neglecting fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Neglecting coming before God's word. So I I know what this is like. I was a DJ in Miami. South Beach, to be more specific. Two different places. And so I have been around the fame, the attention, the money. Hung around with millionaires and billionaires with a B, literally. It is appealing. I had the diamond watch and everything. I did. And that is appealing to the flesh. And I sought after it for a long time. And I can tell you from experience, you cannot do both. But what also they won't tell you about that worldly lifestyle is it is empty. And it is lonely. And it is dark. And it offers you nothing. And like Moses... Had to, God had to bring me to a place to where my heart was broken. Broken for the things of God, so much so that I would give away everything that the world had to offer. And in that moment, I know what Moses was thinking. Behind him was the palace, but he didn't care. In front of him was the people of God. And that was the moment where things changed for Moses, as Stephen tells us, because he chose persecution with God's people as greater than the pleasures of Egypt. Let's continue in our text. Verse 25. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses chose to be a slave among God's people than a prince among the world. That makes no earthly sense. If you were to tell someone who does not know Jesus that I would rather be a slave in the name of Jesus than a prince, the most rich nation in the world, they would think that you're crazy. But we don't have to look too far for another example. Because Jesus, in his temptation, Satan brought him to a high place and he showed him all the nations of all the earth. Satan says, all authority over these has been given to me. 
I will give it to you, Jesus. Just worship me. The irony there is who gave Satan the authority. But what was Jesus' choice? He didn't choose the riches of all the world before his eyes. He chose to continue so that he could suffer for us. Our Savior chose suffering over riches. How could we do any different? And what does our Savior require of us? Turn to Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24. Matthew 16, 24. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You can't lose your life to this world and keep it at the same time. It is impossible. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot follow Christ And leave the cross of his suffering behind. The narrow way that he taught us of is the way of following him. It is not easy in the eyes of the world. It is very easy in the eyes of the world to get distracted by the pleasures of this world. There is no third option. It's either we die to ourselves and die to our old life and live to Christ. Or we live in our old life. And die apart from him forever. Thinking a lot this week uh, about people who come to Christ out of Islam. And what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of an Islamic culture. Like Moses who said that I will choose to be mistreated among the people of God rather than the pleasures of sin. Many people And mass numbers are coming out of Islam and running to Jesus. But what we don't understand in our Western culture is in an honor and shame culture, the greatest thing you could do to shame your family is not murder. That's why murder is not looked at the way we look at it. The greatest thing you can do to shame your family in an Islamic country is to turn away from your family and their religion. Because you're not just turning to a different religion. You are turning your back on your entire family and your entire history. And you will be disowned in a heartbeat. One of the books we have on the shelf back there is by Nabil Qureshi. Uh, If you like biographies, one of the best biographies I've ever read. It's this amazing story of a young man who grows up in a loving household. His family were Pakistani Muslims. His parents were together. They loved him. He was he was smart. He was good in school. And so uh, he's, he's in medical school, and he makes friends with a Christian man. And like men do, we like to debate whose God is greater. And so they started debating religions. And his friend David Wood, who still has a, a thriving ministry still, begins to ask questions about his faith that Nabil can't answer. And he asks his imam, and he can't answer. So Nabil and David debate. The imams and the pastors debate. And this 
smart doctoral student recognizes that I can't believe in something that I can't put my faith and trust in. So I'm going to do the research. And so he goes on this amazing journey of picking apart all of his family traditions. And you'll see it in the book. But he eventually comes to Christ. And his family wanted nothing to do with him. No more holidays, no more birthdays, no more phone calls for the sake of Christ. Uh, Nabil Qureshi, it's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And he died a few months ago. And some of the last moments showed him and his father side by side. His father's still a Muslim, him still a Christian. His dying breath telling him that he wants him to trust in Jesus. But he forsook everything for Christ. It changed so much the expense of his family. Many times when Jesus says you have to forsake your life, it is everything you've ever loved and ever known for the glories in Christ. And faith comes with that deliberate decision to put off the old, put on the new, put on the things of Christ. And real repentance is turning from one thing and turning to another, but also no longer believing in what you are turning from, but trusting in what you are turning to. Repentance is always a transition from dark to light. And our lives, like Hunter mentioned earlier, are one transition from dark to light. We repent and believe constantly. We turn from something as simple as milk and turn to solid food. We no longer drink from a bottle, we drink from a glass. And any growth in our lives is moving from one behavior to another. Some of them look incremental and some of them look massive. Moses right now is in the midst of this massive transition from the fleeting pleasures of sin to being associated with the people of God. Because sin is fun for a moment. But it's fleeting. It's kind of like eating a dozen donuts. It is fun for a moment. But it is fleeting. Because if you've ever done it, I I don't recommend it. But about 20, 30 minutes later, maybe not even, maybe 5, 10 minutes later, you regret it immediately. But the thing about sin is there's always another, do- another dozen donuts that are tempting you. He's not talking about pleasure being bad and we don't, we don't have to demean everything because donuts are good. One donut is good, two donuts are, are good, 12 donuts is sinful. And the pleasures of sin are fleeting. We can find pleasure in good things but not at the expense of the eternal things. Continue in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He considered perils, reproach, suffering, affliction with Christ greater than all the Egyptian prosperity put together. This is something I didn't mention earlier, and I did it on purpose. This word greater here, megas in the Greek. What's interesting, and you miss this in the English, there's this great play on words here. Because in verse 24, when it says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, the Greek is literally having become great. Megas again. Both are in view here. He became great. Stephen tells us that he was mighty in word and deed. He was great in Egypt. The same word is used for what he saw that was greater in a comparative sense. 
the reproach of Christ. One who is mighty in word and deed among all the Egyptians saw something greater in someone who is mighty in word and deed. Luke 24, when the disciples are walking in the road to Emmaus and they're talking to Jesus and they don't recognize him, they describe him as someone who is mighty in word and deed. Moses, mighty in word and deed in all of Egypt, is looking forward to someone who is mighty in word and deed in all of the universe. And someone who is great is looking forward to someone who is greater. And I'm sorry that we missed that in the English, but I wanted you to get that. Because he saw, he considered. We talked about this word considered. With, with Abraham, considering means we thoughtfully Weigh the options. We spend time. We meditate on something. He considered. Weighing all the facts, he considered that the reproach of Christ was greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Think about that for a second. Suffering with Christ is better than treasures in Egypt. The sufferings of Christ are a major theme throughout Scripture, especially in Paul. I could go through many of them, but I want you to see One of the best examples of this, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about often that we share in the sufferings of Christ. And what a crazy Christian sentiment that we'd want to share in someone's suffering. But there's a purpose for it. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in them, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Those of us who are in our study in in, in Romans, we've, we've spent two weeks talking about the law. Not our own righteousness from the law, but pay attention here. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings. The crazy Christian statement that I want to share in someone's sufferings. Why do we want to share in the sufferings of Christ? So I can become like him in his death. That's not a pretty picture, but he's not finished. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The reproach of Christ that Moses was looking forward to is what we hold on to. You might ask yourself, how does Moses know Christ? What is he even talking about? We're going to take this back to Theology 101. Jesus is God. And if you trust in the true and living God and put your faith in him, you are trusting in his Christ, the anointed one that he sent to earth. And your faith is in the everlasting God. Those who trusted in their God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before Christ, were trusting in Christ. So as we begin to wrap this up, this time of year, I'm hit on a sensitive subject. Um, You know me, I like to avoid sensitive subjects. But I want to ask you, who is Christ? This time of year, who is Jesus? I have a very real question to ask. Because is he a baby that never leaves the manger? 
For some he is. Or is he the anointed one of God? The Messiah, the risen and reigning Lord, creator and sustainer of all things, king of kings, prince of peace, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And who is right now seated on his throne of glory with all of the angels and all of the heavenly hosts and the cherubim and the seraphim and the 24 elders and all the saints who went before us, bowing down before him, singing holy, holy, holy over and over and over again. Is he a baby in a manger or is he option B? When the disciples said, no, don't die, don't leave us. He said, no, I must. I'm going to suffer for you. Better to take on sufferings with him and his cross than all the riches of the world. Do you believe that? Because Moses believed that. Now think about this time of year that visually speaking, If you know nothing about Jesus, if you only see what the church portrays, what vision of Jesus do you have? All you know is manger scenes and a cute little baby, nothing but a child's story. It's sad because in our culture, the lordship of Christ is needed way more than his cuteness is right now. We need to know his power and his glory, not just that he is tender and mild. I don't know where that comes from. It's not biblical. I received a flyer this week from a local church, and it broke my heart. Um, kind of spawned this whole thing. I was more angry when I wrote this the first time. It's a little toned down. Uh, but a local church sent out a flyer. And on one side was a pancake breakfast with Santa. This bright, beautiful picture. And on the other side, it says, uh, who knows what the real meaning of Christmas is? And it was a Christmas tree and some lights. And it said, come join us on December 24th, Christmas Eve, to find out. Jesus was a B-side to a gluttonous figment of our imagination and some pancakes. His name was never even mentioned. If this is what the world knows about Jesus, what are we doing? Is Jesus ever more than just a baby in a manger? Is the real meaning of, of Christmas hidden underneath Santa and Charlie Brown and lights and trees? So I'll be honest, that's why we don't have an Advent series here. Or don't, we don't belabor Christmas themes because we preach Christ and him crucified all year round. And if you look at scripture, and I don't want to minimize the incarnation of Christ. Hear me when I say this. All of the Old Testament is looking forward to the coming of the promised one. All of the prophets are looking forward to the anointed one of God coming down to earth. God with us. And he comes and is this amazing scene of a virgin giving birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he grows up. And after he grew up, no one in the New Testament, none of the early church fathers are preaching baby Jesus. They are preaching the person and work of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross. That is why we gather. That is why we're here. He didn't stay a baby. He grew up, he became greater, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe and be ushered into eternal life with me. Because I'm coming back and I'm going to judge the nations. That baby did not stay a baby. Keeping Jesus in the manger takes the focus away from his power. 
Because let's be honest, it's easier to focus on a cute little baby and cute little animals, cute little song about wintertime. That's not threatening. The message of peace and joy is not threatening. But what is threatening is that cute little baby came to receive reproach, suffering and affliction because you're a sinner, because I'm a sinner. He became a suffering servant for wretched sinners like Hunter. I'm just using his own words. And without his suffering, there is no peace and joy. It's not peace and joy for the sake of peace and joy. It is peace and joy. Matthew 1.21, he came to save his people from their sins. That's where peace and joy comes from. Because without that, there is wrath and gnashing of teeth. That is a threatening baby Jesus that doesn't look good on a Hallmark card. Like Moses, the common trait of all believers is that we choose the sufferings and glory of Christ over the riches of this world. Christ chose suffering for us over privilege, over pleasure, and over prosperity. How can we choose anything different? These things are distractions that take our eyes off the prize. Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt, that he was looking to a reward. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, a reward that does not rust, that does not rot, a reward that the world cannot offer. A reward, a reward, hear me when I say this, that a baby in a manger cannot offer unless he goes to the cross. It will always be what we proclaim. Christ and him crucified. Like Paul, I know nothing else. And it's fine. If this is a time of year when you can introduce someone into a conversation about Jesus, do it. By all means, engage the culture where they are. But never leave him in the manger. Because it is blasphemous. He is sitting on the throne of power. Over all of the universe. He should never be anything less. So how do we conclude this morning? Don't chase after the greatness in this life. The world offers privilege. It offers pleasure. It offers power. It offers prosperity. Those things seem great for a moment. Choose the one who is greatest. Seek after the things of God. We have to decide what is our greatest desire. Are we motivated like Moses? The zeal of the house of the Lord consumes me. Is our desire for the riches of God's glorious grace greater than the pleasures of sin? We sing that song. We sung it last week. Grace that is greater than all our sins. We, we know that propositionally. We know that his greatness is greater than my sin. But do we believe that his grace is greater than the pleasures of this world? It's a completely different animal. Because so we can say we believe in him, but go and do what the rest of the world does in the rest of our days and the rest of the year. Do you believe that it is greater to be a son of God 
and the son of Pharaoh? Do you believe that it is greater suffering with Christ than all the pleasures of sin? Do you believe, believe it is greater to have reward on hev- in heaven than on earth? And can you say confidently that in Christ I have everything? The glorious riches of his eternal inheritance. And for his sake, I will forsake anything that opposes him or comes before him in my life. Think about that this Christmas season, the rest of your week, and the rest of your life. Let us be people who exalts Christ to his proper place. Who from that manger we learn to walk people through his perfect life, his perfect ministry, his effectual death on the cross, and his resurrection, and his, and his coming in glory. Let's pray. You are, I am, the first and the last. The one who was, who is, and who is to come. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the one who said, it is not enough to leave man in their sin, but I will come to earth and take on flesh. I will be Emmanuel, God with his people. I will walk among them. They will be my people and I will be their God. That is who you are. You came to be born of a virgin. You came to be celebrated by shepherds and kings. You came to suffer for sinners. The amazing good news of the gospel is that you chose us in the midst of our sin that you loved us by your grace. And let us be people who never tire of proclaiming that we are sinners saved by grace. And that we celebrate the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And we anticipate his coming again. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would teach us and challenge us and mold us into your image that we look less and less like the world, and we look to what is greatest of all time. It is you and only you. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.